0: Good everyone. I'm so glad you're here today joining me on Satiate, the Boulder Nutrition Podcast. I'm Sue Van Rees, your host, functional nutritionist, food psychology specialist, and founder of Boulder Nutrition. I also lead women's wellness and yoga retreats both locally and internationally. You can find out more about me at bouldernutrition.com. My inspiration with Satiate is to offer you functional nutrition, food psychology, and well-being insights, to share with you case studies and stories that can act as salve for your soul, to share with you some of my most favorite special guests and experts from all over the country. And to offer you an opportunity to satiate your body, mind, heart, and soul. If you love this podcast, I would be so grateful to have you head over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a review. That will help me get the podcast out into the world to the listeners who need it most. I want to take a moment and introduce today's special guest, Dr. Alan Fogel. He is a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Utah and has been an active contributor to research on emotional development in human relationships from infancy through adulthood. His many books include Developing Through Relationships, Infancy, Infant Family and Society, Body Sense, the science and practice of embodied self awareness, and Restorative Embodiment and Resilience, his newest book, a guide to disrupt habits, create inner peace, deepen relationships, and feel greater presence. When not working, he finds restoration in gardening, singing, and playing the guitar, hiking and skiing in the mountains near his home in Salt Lake City, Utah swimming and biking and being with his family and friends. Thank you so much for being here today, Alan. It's been um, a little journey getting to know each other and I'm so glad we finally get a chance to come face-to-face.
1: You're welcome, I'm glad to be here.
0: Thank you. So a few months ago I was doing research And I came across your article in Psychology Today, which really inspired me because it was one of the first times I found something that really matched closely to a lot of the work that I do in my practice. And that was about embodiment and eating. And I am just so excited that we were able to get in touch and connect. And then here we are today for the podcast. What a great What a great um, opportunity for us to share this with some other listeners. So I know that um, you specialize in embodied awareness and that you have a lot going on in your business and your life with um, how you're getting your, your work out in the world. But one of the things that I thought would be great to start with is in your article, the original article that I read, You know, there was a lot in there, which was suggesting that mindfulness in food choices and also in our own body satiety can really play a a role in our eating. And I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Well, it's interesting. I just want to kind of comment or remark on the word mindfulness, first of all. Um, because it's a it's a much used word right now, and it's a word that I'm not particularly happy with because it's it starts off with the word mind. And I mean, some people said have said that maybe we should call it bodyfulness. Um, I love that. If we're talking about embodied awareness, because the mind, of course, is very powerful. Um, when I say mind, I'm talking about all of our thought processes. And we can use those kinds of mental processes that help us to modulate or regulate our food food choices or how we eat or what we eat or decisions we make about eating, um, body image, all of those kinds of things. But I'm talking more, I mean, my work is more focused on how we actually feel about food. Not only about food in general, but how food feels when it goes into our body. And the whole experience of shopping and food preparation and eating and sharing meals, I'm more interested, not so much on paying attention, which is like mindfulness, Which is more like focusing our attention on, well, what what am I going to make tonight, and you know, is are my kids going to eat it, and that's sort of like um, what I would consider mindfulness, like really, or thinking about you know, diets or nutrition or those sorts of things. Um, Embodied awareness is more about um, can I just let go and relax while I'm cooking? Can I enjoy the smells of the experience of cooking? When I go to the store and I go shopping, can I let myself be or indulge in the colors of the different fruits and vegetables or, this, or, or the smells or, or the textures? Can I really just be in the present moment with my felt experience. And the same thing is true for, you know, consuming food, uh, flavors and <laughs> feelings connected to that. And, but it isn't just about those sorts of sensory kinds of awarenesses that I've just described. Um, embodied awareness also includes emotion. So as you, I'm sure you know, um, a lot of, dysregulated or disordered eating patterns come from a suppression of our emotions. We eat because we don't want to feel. Um, And there's a lot of interesting research on that topic. So people with eating disorders are less attuned to their own body signals and less attuned to their own emotions. So part of Becoming um, developing a better relationship between food and our bodies is getting in touch with our emotional feelings around food, or the the feelings that food brings up.
0: I love I love this because I think that first of all, um, you know, we can be so fast paced and so busy that we run into the grocery store. We grab something really quick because we're like trying to get home to feed the kids or to feed ourselves or to make dinner, or you know, to kind of complete the daily tasks and, you know, slowing down and being able to be present. Really what you're saying is like presencing ourselves through the attention to what's right in front of us, our senses, but also our emotions. And as you know, my work is so focused on women and food and it's very integral with exactly what you're saying, with getting clouded by the emotions, and therefore basically wanting to check out and you know escape, and obviously comfort is a great way to escape, and food being comfort, you know, and pleasure, it can be used that way. But there's just so much there to work with when we actually start the process of embodying our eating, which is something I talk about a lot, um, and so I love, I love your angle on this. And I also really, I really do find that that word mindful is very confusing in our, in our world. It's also very trendy. And I think sometimes when words get really trendy, they lose their potency and then they kind of get thrown around a lot, like, you know, in conversation. So bodyfulness, um, I was just writing something recently where it was called bring your body to the table. Mm. And that, you know, that really reminds me of what you were saying, because, There's so much going on in our bodies that we can work with. And yet so many of us are so clearly not paying attention to that because either we don't know how, or it's too scary, or there's something, you know, that is um, weighing us down that can make that really challenging. So there's, you know, that piece of getting from, from not feeling embodied to feeling embodied. And I guess really that's the question is like, how do we get there? I know for for so many of the women I work with, you know, there is that interoceptive disconnect, which is so challenging to imagine having repaired. And yet I know it's possible, I've seen it. And at the same time, you know, there's, there's, it's fairly daunting to start when we're feeling so disconnected. Um, One of the questions I wanted to ask you, which, comes from your article is when you want to, you know, improve sit- your situation through therapeutic lifestyle changes um, and how you can increase your body sense, you know, how are those related? What can we do to really work towards that repair?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I know that was a long question. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but it was a good one because it's really important. I, I mean, I think that's the question that's on so many people's minds. And um, and especially if, if you're suffering from an eating disorder or um, you're suffering from a body image disorder or all of those things, I mean, you you know it's it doesn't feel good and you know you want to get out of it but you don't know how and you feel and you may feel trapped in that in a kind of never ending cycle um <clears throat> you know you i just want to come back to something you said about eating for comfort um i mean there is a way in which we eat because there's something that we don't want to feel so in that sense you could think about eating as soothing or comforting. But I, um, I've worked in my clinical practice with men and women around food issues. And um, when I really kind of get down into the, we could call it the psychodynamics of the embodied experience around eating, it doesn't really come out to me as eating is comforting. Um, it's more like eating is more, I would put it more in the category than addiction. Absolutely. In in that sense, um, so, you know, people drink alcohol or take recreational drugs or um, there's so many forms of addiction. Um, We could be addicted to exercise. We can be addicted to food. Um, It runs through a part of our our nervous system that's really about avoidance. It's not so much about comfort. You know, there might be an immediate kind of feeling good from, you know, that extra glass of wine or, you know, you know that extra puff of marijuana or whatever it is that people do um, but it doesn't last very long and when you know when that fades away all of the feelings of depressed feelings and shame and um, disgust and you know all those feelings that we can we can have about ourselves that probably came from, A history, a life history of trauma or abuse or um, disrespect—you know, people who didn't really care about us or didn't listen to us—I really find that that's at the root of so many um, compensatory behaviors, that, that some of which show up as eating disorders.
0: I absolutely agree i see it all the time when we talk about food it often becomes the symptom rather than the root of the problem Mm -hmm. yeah and getting to the root with people can be you know it can take a little while and it needs you know to have some vulnerability and it needs to be we need to be courageous to go into the shadow side sometimes of our psyche to really uproot what what's there and what needs healing but I think over time, with consistent support and, you know, kind of a slow and steady approach, you know, we can get there. But it's definitely it's it's a journey.
1: Well, that's so true what you said, and I, <clears throat> again, I see it in my own clinical practice. It takes a long time to um, to accept, to embrace, to feel the effects of all those you know, traumatic wounds and injuries, not necessarily physical, but mostly psychological. And um, in a way, I find a kind of hopefulness in that. I mean, I think about my own developmental process and I think about my clients. Um, and the, the hopefulness part is that <clears throat> we can heal, we can recover Um, if we give ourselves the right amount of time and space and find the right um, modality or the right practitioner to work with. So it's, and I think that people often get locked into cycles of despair and discouragement, like this is never gonna change and I'm gonna get fatter and fatter, or I'm gonna never get out of this, Um, disordered pattern of relationship to food, or, you know, so I think the fact that we do have treatments, we do have approaches, we do have educational techniques that really do get to the root cause of eating problems. And there's just so much more now going on in relation to body awareness, which excites me about the way the field is going.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. A term I've been really fond of lately is body compassion. Mm. And, you know, it just really sums up that there is the antithesis of that is really prevalent and very much an epidemic in our culture and how, you know, how we can eventually turn our focus to more of a compassionate approach with our bodies and a loving approach with our bodies is so much more effective than, you know, some of the other prescriptive type eating regimens that are restrictive and even, you know, even some of the self-care practices that are in a sense, just kind of superficial, you know, I think, and it's not to say that they're not valuable, but I don't know if we can really equate self-love with pedicures, you know, like that's something I think that we often think like, oh, I'm going to treat myself today and do some self-care. And, you know, in a sense that is, you know, beautifying and it's nice and it's relaxing but there is a deeper conversation i think that we need to get into when we really want to talk about body compassion and self-love and how those can play out in our eating
1: yeah i i, I totally agree and but again i think that uh, well well let me go back to you know anytime we're talking about prescriptions or prescriptive practices like um A diet, a particular kind of diet, or you know, a particular set of rules for the way we approach, you know, eating or food, or a set of mindfulness practices. You know, whenever we're kind of tying things up neatly into a set of into some kind of regimen or set of practices, um, the research that I've read. Pretty much shows that those are eventually doomed to fail, and and that just going to lead into it's just going to feed back into that cycle of discouragement and helplessness mm. because those kinds of if we think we can get better just by following a routine, um, you know, then we start to get hopeful about that, but typically we. It lasts for a few months, and then we can't do it anymore. We can't keep it up. It doesn't really fit us, or the motivation goes away, or whatever, and I think um, in some ways, those things are are, um, counterproductive. Mm
0: -hmm. And in a sense, they can become addictive in themselves and override what's actually still the root issue.
1: Right. Yeah, so I think getting to the root issues, which are largely um, life history, um, emotional, um, you know, ways in which we get in touch or lose touch with our body awareness, the, that's, that's what really works. Yeah. And that's what research shows. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's hard. It's hard to do that. It's not an easy path. Because then we have to start to feel, um, really feel, for example, our shame around our body image or around um, the way we eat or, or who told us you know, something or criticized us for how we ate or um, for how we looked or all of those kind of things. And there's so much pain connected with that. So it's so important to have a compassionate guide to help us rebuild our own self-compassion.
0: Absolutely. So I know that it's a very big question and probably much too big for this conversation, but maybe you can give us sort of a few ideas of what we can do to begin the process. You know, I know that obviously this is, you know, a project that could take years and even lifetime to feel like we've healed or repaired some of that old paradigm of belief that has got us to where we are with our eating and our body image. And yet there's also, you know, things we can start to do to become more embodied with our awareness or to at least acknowledge some of the deeper issues. What would you say you would start somebody doing if you were working with them in this way to help them initiate some healing?
1: Um, it depends on where people live and what resources they have available. Um, <clears throat> although so much now can be done online, I mean, I think the pandemic has taught us that Definitely. we can do therapy online, we can do um, classes online, you know, so it's no longer so much tied to. <clears throat> location or even income because um, you know we, we can distribute uh, possibilities across a wider number of people. So uh, uh, but basically, I would say any program that focuses on on developing body awareness that's not prescriptive that is open, that allows us to express ourselves freely. Um, And, you know, actually there's one study I came across as I was writing this new book of mine, which was done in Melbourne, Australia. It was a study of women who had eating disorders who um, participated in a yoga class. So, And the yoga class, let me me just look at my notes about this so I get it straight. Um, It was a 12 12 week yoga program. And it had three three main focuses. One was um, body awareness about feeling the difference between movement and stillness like when you move into a posture and when you stay still in a posture. Okay, that's interesting to me. That first goal of the program is interesting to me because it's just pure body awareness. It has nothing to do with eating. Um, And the second goal of the program was awareness of breathing patterns, which, of course, is part of a lot of yoga practices. And the third goal is what they called mindful eating. And um, the participants were taught to, I'll just quote, remove all distractions when eating, such as TV, books, smartphones, pay attention to the amount of food placed in the mouth, how it tastes, and wait until swallowing that mouthful before taking more food. Okay. That's what they taught. They didn't teach anything about what kinds of food to eat. They didn't teach anything about um, food restrictions or how much you should eat. Just those three things about body awareness and staying in touch. So, <clears throat> at the start of the study, <clears throat> one of the women in the group said, um, "You know, they had they had group discussions, and she said." How is it possible to be so unconscious of the way you appear, yet be so obsessed with it? I think I dissociate from my body 90% of the time. And another woman said, I hate what I'm doing to myself. I recognize it as self-punishment, mutilation, that my intellect and emotions aren't communicating with each other. My body feels awful, aches and pains all over, bloated, constipated flatulence, headaches, nausea, puffy ankles. This was a quote from one of these people just starting the study. Um, And basically what they found was that at the end of this 12-week study, all of the women improved in their body image, their relationship to food, um, you know, all of the things you you, you would expect uh, or would want them to, and it didn't have anything to do with um, uh, dieting. And, and here's here's a quote from one of the participants at the end of the program, which I really like, and I'll tell you why I like it after I read it. She said, um, oh, this, so, she was talking about the body awareness of being hungry and getting comfortable with feeling hungry, which is pretty fascinating, right? Like just to be able to tolerate the sense of feeling hungry. She so said,
0: so phenomenal, yeah.
1: She said, I feel peaceful and hopeful. I'm eating like a normal person, enjoying what I eat and not obsessing like usual. I am not currently afraid of feeling hun- hungry. Sometimes I enjoy the feeling of hunger as my body digests the lovely, healthy food I just fed Wow! So, I mean, that's such a simple intervention, mm-hmm. and it didn't necessarily involve the things we, you and I, were just talking about about you know coming to terms with emotional trauma and all. Mm-hmm. Of that. It was just about um, paying attention to our bodies and learning to feel comfortable with the discomforts of our bodies.
0: Absolutely. When we break it down like that, it's like, it's interesting that it can be for lack of a better word, simple in the practice of embodiment which I think there are many ways to get there. A lot of my clients that I work with um, especially around disordered eating I find that when they have some kind of embodiment practice, yoga being probably, you know, the most popular, but there's many that it really can anchor the work that we're doing so much more fully. Just just something so simple as breathing and being aware of it and sensing and being aware of it and relaxing the mind and, you know, letting the breath relax the thoughts. These things can be so powerful. And, you know, not always, I think we can also do yoga very fast and very disembodied if we're not, you know, even aware of that as an option, or if we're kind of looking at yoga, maybe as just exercise where we just get in and out and, you know, it could be, you know, any kind of movement. Um, But I also think just about any kind of movement can bring that same quality if we bring the awareness to it. You know, I mean, I find that when I'm hiking or when I'm dancing or so many other things, because we are intending it and because we are basically slowing ourselves down so I absolutely I absolutely agree with that study and yet um, I'm glad that you were able to break it down in such basic terms for us because it really does show that we can make progress with these simple aspects of our of our you know daily practices
1: well one thing I like about this last quote is, I feel peaceful and hopeful, that's what she said. And um, this book that I I wrote that's due out this fall, it's called Embodied Restoration and Resilience. I'm focusing on this idea of restoration, embodied restoration, Mm. or restorative embodied self-awareness. And that's a state where we really, slow down and come to rest, like what you were just describing. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, you know, I can go on a hike, and I can be in my thoughts the whole time, and not really notice the beauty of the trees or the mountains or whatever is around me. and. I'm getting exercise, but I'm not getting restored. <clears throat> but if I, on my hike, if I stop and I really, like just take in, you know, the um, feeling of the breeze or, you know, the color of the trees or the sky or the water or the rocks, and just really let it, you know, come into me and become part of me. Then I can feel my heart rate slowing down and I can feel my breathing getting deeper. And I can feel myself coming into this more deeper, peaceful state, which I call restorative because it feels restorative. I mean, Mm -hmm. like everything sounds
0: restorative. (laughs) Yeah,
1: everything's coming alive inside me. But it's also interesting that if you look at the the um, physiology of that state, you'll find that when our breathing slows down, when our heart rate slows down, um, when we come to a state of rest or a sense of peace and we stop thinking, we're just where we are in that moment, it changes all the functional systems of the body. Our digestion will start working better our heart, our cardiovascular system will work better. Our immune system function will work better. It's amazing, (laughs) you know, it's such a simple thing to come to rest or it's such a simple concept that just coming to rest and giving ourselves the opportunity to come to rest can be so therapeutic, literally healing. Um, So we're restoring not only ourselves in a sense of finding a sense of peace, but we're storing, we're restoring our physical health as well.
0: <clears throat> I absolutely agree. One of the things I love to do on my women's retreats is do this practice called forest bathing, which you may have heard of. Um, and the research on forest bathing out of Japan is actually pretty profound. I always get people asking me if they're going to go swimming in a Creek or something. And if they need their bathing suit, which is funny, but we only do it for about 10 or 15 minutes in the woods, often up uh, in the mountains of Colorado. And, you know, there'll be like a group of 20 women on a hike and we'll spread out into the forest. And I'll explain a little bit about the history of forest bathing and the health benefits and then we'll spread out and we'll go find our own little spot to sit and be, which I don't think that many of us do very often in the forest. I mean, we might do that in a park, but we don't often find ourselves sitting and being in the forest, more Mm -hmm. hiking or something, but it's so amazing what happens in 15 minutes with these women and how they can discover, you know, a whole different element of nature and it's restorative benefits, which is what reminded me of what you were saying, you know, to, to bring that into our lives more, more regularly in some way, it can be so powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, I love that idea, I hadn't heard about it before.
0: Oh, really? Yeah.
1: But it reminds me about, you know, some studies I came across when I was researching for this book about the sense of awe. A-W-E, and, you know, it's an emotion, it's a feeling that's fundamentally restorative. Uh I mean, um, and, you know, where and how we come to a feeling of awe may be different for different people. So... You know, for some people, maybe it's being in that forest and just taking it in and being, you know, coming to a place of, you know, just noticing the beauty of everything that's around you. Um, But for some people, it might be going to a religious service, um, coming closer to their, who they feel or their connection to whatever they define as God. Also bring a sense of law or um, being with a child or um, being with a lover, you know, in a, in a way that's open and um, and awesome, you know, <laughs> literally. Um, so there are just so many ways. Um, some people could get it from river rafting. Um, that wouldn't work for me because I'm terrified of rapid water. <laughs> it just fills me with fear and anxiety. Right. But but you know what I mean? And and the interesting thing about awe is it's connected to um, two things, which I'm going to mention just because it helps us to be aware that we're in that state. One is, is one of those things is a sense of oneness, mm. like we're not separate from the forest, we're not separate from the earth, we're not separate from God, we're not separate from our lover. We're we're not alone. Um, and the other is what um, some people have called a sense of the small self. And the small self doesn't mean that we're unimportant. It just means that we really get that we're part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something about those feelings. And I notice, just when I'm looking at you, that you just took a deeper breath. Um, and that's a good example of the physiological changes that happen when we really come into that place of amazement or wonder. Um, but I really love that concept of the small self because it, it takes us out of the daily worries and cares and brings us into something much bigger than ourselves. And that in itself can create a sense of purpose and hopefulness um, and courage, you know, to um, just go back and do some of the hard things. That we might need to do in our lives
0: really that kind of circles right back to being restored in a way that we have our energy intact Mm -hmm. to show up more fully with what we need to do or the service that we want to give to the world or you know however we want to show up in our circle of life when we have that ability to restore you know there's more energy to give back which is more of like a flow rather than a Uh, a force, you know, and that's always something I've had to work on flowing rather than forcing, because I can get very Mm -hmm. assertive with my work or with my, you know, daily tasks. And then it's like, okay, wait, take a breath, slow down and move from a place of, you know, wholeness rather than scatteredness or whatever it is. Um, I love that. I
1: love that example. And, um, I think so many of us get trapped into doing, Mm. you know, we go from, we finish one task and then we go to the next one and we go to the next one because it's never ending. There's always something to do. Yeah. Um, And the busier life, the busier your life is with work or family or, um, you know, uh, other commitments, the harder it is to make that choice to, take some time, even if it's just 15 minutes, just totally for ourselves to be in that place of peace or being settled Mm is so, it's just so healing.
0: Yeah, I love it and I so agree. I know that your new book will, you said it's coming out um, in the fall Mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's a pre-order date, is that true?
1: I'm not sure. It's being published by a company called North Atlantic Books. So you could start checking their website, you know, probably in the summer. They'll have probably by then a cover and, you
0: know,
1: information about.
0: I know that you mentioned earlier before we before we hopped on the podcast that you had some excerpts from your book that were related to our topic of conversation I'd love to hear those if you're up for sharing them.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll do a little reading from the book. Um, this is just about the experience of eating. And in, in the book, I, I make a distinction between dysregulated embodied self-awareness, which is where we find ourselves when we're lost, or Depressed or um, uh, stuck in some way, or um, we, we're suffering from an eating disorder. Um, we've li- we've lost touch with our body. That's a dysregulated state of embodied self-awareness. And then um, <clears throat> there's a middle state, which is called modulated embodied self-awareness. And this is where we're we have some some sense of our body. We we're kind of aware of it, but we're still doing a lot of thinking and we're organizing our lives according to routines and thoughts and plans. And those might include, well, okay, I've gotta I'm gonna set my phone to set an alarm that you know, I'm gonna do 15 minutes of meditation. okay. That's all part of what I call being modulated, that is. We're not dysregulated, we're not um, in that place of stuckness. We have some strategies, we have routines, we have skills. We may have some of those diets we talked about earlier. And then the third state is this restorative state where we're not thinking at all. We're totally in the present moment. So this little excerpt is about eating um, a chocolate dessert. Now, I chose chocolate because I love chocolate. But you and your listeners can imagine eating something really delicious that you love. It doesn't have to be chocolate.
0: <laughs> I usually choose chocolate anyways, so that's, okay. uh, that's perfect. <laughs>
1: um, and I'm going to read an excerpt, what it might feel like to be in a modulated, to eat that piece of chocolate cake. In a modulated way compared to a restorative way. Okay. <clears throat> okay, so the title of this example is called Chocolate Decadence. And chocolate decadence is the name of a particularly rich and creamy, flourless chocolate cake, usually made with butter, eggs, maybe some cream and almond meal, and of course, dark and velvety melted chocolate with a high percentage of cacao and low amount of sugar. Dark chocolate also contains high levels of healthy antioxidants. And if you don't like chocolate cake, as I said, you can substitute for something else you really like. So here's a mo- an example of how you might eat this piece of cake in a modulated way, with modulated embodies support. Okay, so you're eating your slice of chocolate decadence while you're talking to someone, or reading, or checking email, or none of these things, but you've got a lot on your mind. In your mouth, chewing is definitely chocolatey and creamy. It's familiar. It settles into a mental list of formerly consumed dessert treats and merits and an imagined spreadsheet of comparison and categorization. You might be planning how you eat this, not too fast, and you have to discern how long to wait between bites as you're moving toward the completion of eating this, wow, increasingly tiny slice of cake. <clears throat> Maybe you were telling yourself that you were really enjoying this and tasting it, you're thinking. And you're convincing yourself in modulated thought that you're not rushing. And perhaps you're thinking things like, it's really good, or wonderful, or I need to thank this person for making this awesome dessert. Or you might be thinking about when and how to take a picture of the slice, like pre-eaten, one bite taken out, maybe to post on social media and what you plan to say about it. (laughs) Each bite lasts only seconds, and then you count and wait. You take another bite, the same as the last, moving another step toward finishing. Now it's gone, and you continue the thoughts. You tell yourself, that you are full and complete or that you want more or that you have to get up and do the dishes or pay the bill or move on to the next thing. Or maybe you do want another slice. Okay, so that's a little bit exaggerated but that's my example Mm -hmm. of modulated eating. And here's what I um, described as restorative eating. So maybe you want to just kind of settle into yourself for a minute, because this, this segment feels really different. It's a very different. Um, you might want to just kind of feel yourself um, in your chair or wherever you're sitting, and close your eyes. And take a couple of breaths. Just give yourself a a chance to to settle your system. Now, don't pay attention so much. Just kind of let it, what I'm about to read, kind of wash over you. And just take in whatever comes in. And you don't have to pay attention to track it all, okay? Fattiness spreads over the surface of your tongue as it warms in your mouth and melts. A feeling of blessing, hope, soothing in how it envelops and softens the tongue into a sense of receptivity. Like the tongue can just rest peacefully and contentedly in the bottom of your mouth. And then the chocolate flavors hit their notes along the tongue and register as cinnamon, cloves, earth, cacao, coffee, bitter and sweet. These flavors land right in the pleasure centers of your nervous system and spread into a relaxation response with a deep sigh and an aphrodisiacal tinge of hormones, of full body warmth. Then come the grace notes against the swelling fatty base a chocolate rush on the tongue, and then the whole mouth maybe, you have, and maybe you haven't even felt the urge to chew yet, but only to move your tongue in and out like a baby's sucking motions, that express the flavors and textures of a clearly now decadent piece of cake, and then the fading, the waning, the loss felt on swallowing. The ending that slowly and inexorably emerges and blossoms as the fat dissolves into tasteless saliva. Yes, a few lingering essences still adhering, adhering to the grooves of the tongue and between the teeth and evoking a memory of what had just been, just moments ago, filling your entire body. And in this way, in your present moment, non thinking, felt experience. That's what decides when to take another bite, when to feel, when to swallow. Each bite is a timeless lifetime, a shameless ecstasy really totally without shame and full of a contagious feeling of mischievous and forbidden pleasure. Hmm. Yes, shameless ecstasy of softness, of sparks of flavor, each completely in itself and completely true. And strangely, there is no desire. There's no wanting. There's no waiting for something else to happen. No anticipation, only your own melting and softening as if you were in the arms of a completely safe and trusted loved one.
0: Wow that is a uh, well first of all very different but so evoking of just contentment and pleasure and joy and satiation and i love it thank you for that that was a great depiction of modulated versus embodied or restored restorative,
1: restorative. Um, yeah,
0: restorative.
1: yeah i mean i have to admit I don't always go there when I eat, but I can go there if I choose to go there, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's what's important is that <clears throat> it's like your are um, forest bathing. Um, we don't always have time to do that, but the fact that we know that we could do that, that we could really be in the full presence of richness, flavor, beauty, um, comfort, peace, soothing. Yeah. And and create the space in our lives to allow those things to happen Mm. more.
0: I think it's really important what you just said, because I'm sure as we're listening, as I was even listening, I'm thinking, you know, how is this possible to do all the time? That was definitely coming up for me. And I've noticed that some days when I'm in more of a busy spiral, it's really hard for me to slow down at mealtime, especially lunch, you know, when I'm in the middle of my workday. And I'm so aware of it. It takes me a lot of effort. Like I feel like almost, um, you know, swimming upstream kind of effort to slow down. Like, cause all of my momentum is heading in this, direction of you know productivity or something like that but knowing that we can and that we don't always have to to benefit from it but like learning how to get there and practicing when we can and maybe even dedicating certain meals or certain times of the week where we have more space to do that
1: mm-hmm. i think
0: that makes it so much more attainable for, for for anyone listening or for people practicing that this is not something that we have to do hundred percent of the time. Obviously, yes. Life is when we have toddlers or kids getting out the door for breakfast, you know, to school and we're feeding them breakfast in the, in the morning. Like I remember those days when my kids were young. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to slow down and enjoy your bowl of oatmeal when everyone around you is, you know, throwing food and causing mm-hmm. chaos and you're trying to get kids dressed who are fighting against you or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's like real life. And then, but even within a crazy real life of raising young kids or being really busy or whatever it is that we have going on, we can still designate time for ourselves mm-hmm. in this way. And that, that yeah. makes it feel so much more manageable and doable and something we can practice.
1: There's something else about what you, you said, Sue, um, that I count as kind of on the pathway toward restoration which is our awareness that we're not there.
0: (laughs) Exactly, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, To be able to say to ourselves, I know there are times when I can be there. I know I have those times and moments of peace and grace, but to be able to just admit to ourselves, ah, you know, I." There's just too much going on right now. And I'm really missing that. And I'm feeling the loss of that. And, um, and I just, all I can do now is manage. That's, mm-hmm. that's really big. I think that's really big. That that I would count that as modulated. Mm-hmm. That sense that yeah. we get it. We get that we do have a lot to do and we can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the danger, you know, is slipping into dysregulation where we're in those places of busyness and all we do is beat ourselves up mentally. Mm -hmm. We think we're not good enough, that we're never going to get the kids out the door and dress for school, that we're never going to be enough for the people around us that Um, all these tests are overwhelming and that we're disappointed in ourselves and Mm -hmm. we're ashamed of our limitations. So that's the difference between feeling dysregulated. It's an awareness of those emotions of hopelessness or despair or shame versus an awareness of the emotions of I'm just really busy right now, and I get it. And um, I get that I'm not out of control, and that feels kind of good that I'm not out of control mm-hmm. and I'm managing okay. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, just tracking ourselves through those different states of embodiment can be incredibly powerful.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to share a little snippet, something I've noticed lately. Um, because, you know, the pandemic has obviously been keeping us homebound. And right now we have three kids here at home, mostly older teenagers and college students. But, you know, everyone's on Zoom all day. And there's a lot of, of action in the kitchen. And one thing I've noticed lately about myself, so we cook dinner at home pretty much every night because that's what most people are doing. And, and then there's, you know, the, the sitting down to eat, And I love cooking, you know. but it has been a long pandemic. (laughs) So there's the cooking dinner and then there's the sitting down to eat dinner. And then there's the dinner cleanup. And then what my partner and I do is we generally find something relaxing to do after dinner. It's kind of like our relaxing time of the day. And it's interesting. I've really been witnessing this in myself lately. I am eating dinner quickly. I think because I wanna get to the relaxing part of the day. And so where generally I would be more inclined to slow down and like, you know, linger at dinner and kind of really take in the sensations and the food. And, you know, we make such good food together here. Um, but I've just had this, I've witnessed this speeding up and accelerated, almost like energy in my body at dinner time. And I finally started to look into it a little bit and it's like, oh, it's because I know I still have to clean up. And I'm not really able to fully relax yet until that part's done. And and then we get to the part of the day where we get to restore a little bit more. And so, yeah, I'm just kind of saying that because I think it's an example of what you're talking about, how life can come in. And I know a lot of people have had accelerated issues based on the pandemic, for sure. Uh Um, And life can happen in a way that all of a sudden we find ourselves in a pattern and we didn't even realize it was coming up or or occurring until it's got a little bit of traction. And so I've been really working with that lately myself. So thank you for kind of helping me reveal
1: that. I I just admire your insightfulness about yourself in terms of
0: thank you. You
1: know what's happening inside your body. Um you know what I find in my own self and in my clients is that, getting to a place of being able to do what you just did, which is just um, without any value judgment, like it's not good or bad. It's just, that's just what happens to me. I rush through my dinner so I can get to be with my partner and we can be together. Um, that's that's beautiful, I mean, I. I think that's healthy um, to just be able to non-judgmentally look at ourselves and our patterns and how we go through the day and when we feel overwhelmed and when we feel rushed and when we're pushing ourselves. And, and sure, we can also, you know learn ways to slow down and maybe not be so so frantic. But <clears throat> we can't really do that well. And also the same thing applies to making healthy eating choices. We can't really do that if we're filled with self- self-judgment. Mm. Yeah. So if, if that's part of what we're noticing about ourselves, that we're judging ourselves, we're doing what we're doing, which I didn't feel that from you at all. Um, when you were describing it, you were just reporting. Yeah. This is what happens, and I've noticed this, um, which I think is great. Um, but if we notice that we're judging ourselves, like we're thinking, and I shouldn't be doing this, or my, you know, embodied therapist said, no, you have to slow down. And I can't <laughs> slow down. <laughs> you know, then it's the same, for me, it's the same therapeutic process that we can do with another person or even within ourselves which is just to notice non-judgmentally that we're critical about ourselves. (sighs) It's just an observation. It's just getting that when we feel stressed, that happens to us. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who it doesn't happen to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) I think that's a really good point too, right? Yeah.
1: you know, when I get overwhelmed and stressed, I'm just more self-critical. Where I, I get more worried or more anxious. and yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think the difference for me has come with just being able to name those things mm-hmm. to honor when I'm becoming dysregulated and and kind of looking around myself and looking around the room and looking around at the events of the day and saying, what could have set that off or what what happened today that was so stressful and usually you know there's a good reason you know mm-hmm. and and then I can settle myself a little bit more I can think okay now I get it I get why I got so judgmental about myself
0: yeah Wow that's a great a great reminder I think for all of us that you know there is the human, consciousness and human living is so imperfect and messy and it's intense to be in a life it's intense to live in this world and i don't think it's reasonable to expect us to be able to hold these you know these um these different practices 100 percent of the time because obviously life is gonna swoop in and throw us off balance you know sometimes often um, but that what I always remind myself and my clients is, can we recognize those moments? And then can we bring ourselves back to equilibrium or center or balance quicker and quicker? You know, it's like the further we get off balance, the harder it is to come back. Yeah. But if we can kind of keep our, our eye on it, at least we can recognize where we need to rein things in or pause or take a moment for ourselves or get support or various things. So um, it's so great to just chat with you about these ideas because they're so important. And yet, obviously, many of us struggle with them. So I can't wait to read your book. It'll be right. great to see it all in a, in a compilation of your, of your work.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Alan, it's been so good to have you on the podcast today. I feel like this conversation is so inspiring for me. And I'm just so grateful that you were able to, you know, etch out some time in the midst of all that you have going on with your new book and your practice and your busy life too. So just very heartfelt gratitude for me. And I'm really glad that we got to connect and meet and so grateful. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of Satiate. Sending you my wholehearted wish for your health and happiness, and I will see you back here very soon.